Well, we're out of part of our lockdown. We've been in lockdown for several weeks, so much so that the airport is completely closed. And uh, up until 7 o'clock this morning, Sunday morning, uh, we weren't allowed to go any more than one kilometer from our homes to go anywhere. And in terms of gathering, we, can only, we, we could only gather up to five people last week. Now we can gather up to 10. Wow, 10 people. So uh, those of you who are praying for us, we ask you to continue to pray that we'll conquer this coronavirus, we'll be able to move forward and get back to some kind of normal. And I know that's going to be different no matter what happens, but God's got a great plan ahead for all of us, I believe. Well, before we get into God's word, let's pray. Lord, we come to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one we need to listen to carefully tonight. Lord, we submit to you, our Lord, our Master. Help me, Lord, to be your vessel, your oracle, to proclaim your word loud and clear. And may we have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us this evening. Amen. Well, as Pastor Chad said, we're continuing our series from 1 Peter. And the title of our series is Life Behind the Shield. And I'm sticking with that theme this evening as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 6 all the way through to chapter 3 and verse 7. Now, Pastor Mike last week touched on a lot of these things from chapter 2, but I'm focusing in on one particular topic that he touched on, but I'm going to go a little deeper now. We're going to see from my, the word that I declare tonight that God has called us to be aligned to his design. And that is the title of my message, Aligned to God's Design. First of all, I want to establish the fact that God has designed a very orderly and beautiful world. In Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he speaks about us being built together as a temple, a spiritual house for God's dwelling. I'm going to stick with that analogy through much of this message tonight. The first thing we learn is that God is our architect. He's our builder of this temple. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 says concerning our forefather in the faith Abraham, he was looking forward to the city with permanent foundations of which the architect and builder is God. Now some Greek scholars translate this word architect as designer and certainly God has a grand design and he is the creator of the world and the designer of the entire universe. And although the world got messed up in many ways, God is also the recreator. He is the redeemer of fallen humanity. And now God has a grand design to take broken and dying people and make them into restored stones for his dwelling place. In chapter 2, verse 5 of First Peter, he says, You also are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Now those of us who entrust our lives to Yeshua, the Savior, are being recreated by God. We're being beautified. We're being placed more properly in the building that God is building. You may think that you're not special in God's building project, but you are. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says that we are God's own special people who proclaim his praises. God has gone to his quarry. He's looked for that perfect stone the perfect color, the perfect thing that will make his building strong and beautiful. And he's chosen you and me for that purpose. Where do I get that from? Isaiah chapter 51 verse 1 says, 
You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. The Lord has hewn us out of his quarry for a special purpose in his spiritual building. Some of you might relate more to the pit from which you have been taken rather than the quarry. You've come from a pretty rough place. But don't forget what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28 and following. He says that God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. Yes, God has chosen you and me for the, his grand design. And as undeserving as we may feel, as ugly are the sins that we have committed, he, is, he has chosen us to be his living stones, to beautify his temple. We are uniquely positioned for God's praise. That's what it says in verse 9. Pro, we proclaim his praises when we're part of that building. Now, my main emphasis in this message is to focus on what Peter says concerning these stones that are to be rightly aligned to God's design. You can have the most beautiful stones in the world, but if they are not aligned properly, that building is going to be crooked. It's going to be grotesque. In fact, we are to be aligned one to another, but more than that, we are to be aligned to the cornerstone of that building. We're going to get to that in a minute. I just want to mention to you, a few days ago, I was walking down Hillel Street, right downtown Jerusalem, and I was looking, and suddenly I see all these policemen. We see... Um, fire trucks and ambulances and I got closer and I saw a hole in the ground the corner of a building it was actually the Jerusalem Tower Hotel suddenly fell and went down to the first floor of the underground parking and there was this huge dangerous pit I wonder who that architect is I wonder if he's still alive and I wonder what's going to happen to the rest of that building I hope it's strong stronger than that one corner now let me get back to my introduction just to remind you that our creator is the grand architect and builder. He's also the recreator who is designing a spiritual temple for his presence. And we're an important part of that. And we're part of it to ultimately declare his praises, to give him glory. Now if we are not properly aligned as stones in his temple, then there is no shield. This is the series we're doing, Life Behind the Shield. Unless that building is made strong by the proper positioning of the stones in the building, it will not be strong enough to withstand earthquakes. It won't be able to stand against any attacking armies. In some ways, his temple is like a fortress against the enemy of our souls. And Paul says, uh, sorry, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 45, 25, that we have a tendency to be like sheep who go astray. Uh, we get out of our proper position. We wander off. And then he also says in verse 18 of chapter 1 that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. So easy for us when we're not in proper position, in God's proper order, that we're aimless. We don't have a sense of why we're on this planet. We have identity issues. We don't know why or for what purpose God has put us here. Well, my message this evening, I hope, will help all of us, especially those among us who are without a sense of significance or purpose or direction. 
One of the great tragedies of getting out of alignment with God's purpose is how it makes us vulnerable to the prince of this world. We know that the devil is trying to get us to align with his design. Instead of purpose and order, there is futility and disorder in his world. And like he who rebelled against God's design in heaven, we are seeing now he's trying to bring that same rebellious spirit into the world today, and chaos is the result. There's disorder instead of God's perfect order. John chapter 10 verse 10 says concerning the enemy of our souls, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And much of our destruction is because the devil is self-centered. And those who follow him tend to go with those selfish, self-centered intentions. James chapter 3 verse 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And then in our own text, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 14, it tells us to be obedient children, not conforming ourselves to the former lusts. And then in chapter 2 verse 11, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. So we need to be properly aligned with God and his design, not with the enemy and his design, which will lead to destruction which will lead to us rebelling against God, which will lead to us following our lusts, our passions, after position and fame. The first thing we learn is that we need to be aligned to the cornerstone. Peter recalls the words of Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, where he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and pre pre precious. He who believes on him but will by no means be put to shame. How are we living as living stones in God's building? Hopefully... We are relating and aligning ourselves to the cornerstone. Peter says in verse 4 of the same chapter, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. What does it mean to come to him, the cornerstone? A Greek lexicon says it means to move toward a reference point. And we know that a cornerstone in the foundation of a building is a reference point for all the other stones. The stones to the side, the stones above, all need to be aligned to that perfect cornerstone. How aligned are you to the cornerstone? Who is Christ? Who is the Messiah? The perfect one of, sent by God to set his design in order for the entire universe. One of the main words for righteousness in the New Testament speaks of a kind of proper alignment. And the seriousness of this matter of alignment is reflected in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, where we read, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Now, that word for righteousness here in that text uh, can mean, in fact, one of the main meanings is to cause someone to be in a proper or right relation with someone else. Righteousness is getting into real alignment, right alignment, with someone else. In the case of us living stones, we must be rightly aligned with the cornerstone, who is the man God has ordained to judge the world according to the way we are aligned to him.
There is only one way to be rightly aligned with God, and that is being aligned to his cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, which is the Messiah. How close are you to the Lord these days? Uh, to what degree are you closely attached to him, aligned with him, looking to him for your right position and for your right purpose in this world? Are you positioned according to the building plans and the building permits? Some of us need to spend more time in the scriptures to see what that plan, that purpose, and that permits, that permit is for our building that we're being built into. Secondly, I want to talk about our need to be aligned to human authorities. We've talked about being aligned to the cornerstone, but what about one another? In verse 5 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter, and we'll get, have a sermon on that later in this series, but I want you to just recognize what Peter sums up with these words. He says, all of you be submissive to one another. All of you be submissive to one another. The first way to be aligned or submissive is to be submissive to the authorities that God has placed in this world. Peter says in chapter 2, verses 13 and following, that we are to submit ourselves to every instituted authority. We could read more of those verses, but some of those verses I'll read later in this message. We are to submit ourselves to every instituted authority. In other words, every God-ordained authority in this world. Now, aligning ourselves and submitting ourselves to our cornerstone is one thing, but aligning ourselves with governments and instituted authorities in this world is another thing. That can be much more difficult. Joseph's brothers were more than a little upset when he had a dream about ultimately ruling over his brothers. Now, I think of Moses as well. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we read about two men that were fighting each other, and the one who was in the wrong said to Moses, why are you, uh, he said, who made you prince and a judge over us? And Yeshua was becoming a threat to uh, leaders in his day among the Jewish community. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, we read, now when Yeshua came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people con confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Most people of the world, in the human natural sense, have a hard time with authority. It's interesting timing that yesterday Jews all over the world read the same passage from Exodus chapter 18. It's very relevant to the message I'm preaching this evening. A management consultant came to Moses. He happened to be his father-in-law, Jethro. And Jethro was observing how Moses was operating as a leader. Moses was dealing with all of the cases where people needed judgments. They needed rulings. And he was getting very tired, and Jethro said, this is not good. And he said, listen to my voice. I'll give you counsel. And this is what he said. He said, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times, that every Great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall judge. Now, Moses' uh, father-in-law was pretty wise. I don't know if you have a father-in-law that gives you advice, but probably you should at least listen to that advice. And Moses did. He instituted what Jethro 
told him to do. I wonder about some of the people who didn't even get to lead tens. Uh, Moses, what are we, chop liver? <laughs> Going back to the main text in First Peter here, we see what the apostle says about this matter of aligning ourselves to God-ordained human authorities. And I'm reading from First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17 now. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I don't know if you have problems with authority, but we are to recognize that God placed governments in place. And we are called to honor, to respect, even fear at times if we're out of order, we're to honor this system that God put in place. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 Paul declares, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Here's our big problem, and it happens to be called idolatry by Paul, and that is we covet position. We cover, covet authority. We want to be the leaders in many cases, but this is wrong. God has placed certain people in position. And if we're not placed in one of those higher positions, we should be content and we should honor those people. Sir John Dahlberg Acton once said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there are many corrupt governments today and it's hard to show respect and honor and obedience toward them. But if we want things to go well with us, according to the scriptures, we need to submit to their authority. We need to pay our taxes and our customs. Paul writes in uh, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 and following, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And then he says at the end of that section, do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he, that is the leader of the government, is God's minister to you for good. It's good to honor governmental authorities if they've been ordained by God. Now those governing authorities are not always perfect. And in Yeshua's day, the Romans were the authorities across the Middle East, in the Mediterranean. And Yeshua was subject to those authorities. Yet he submitted even to authorities that in many ways were out of line with God's purposes. I think of Jeremiah who gave advice to the exiles who were living in a very corrupt society, in a cruel nation of Babylon. This is what he says in chapter 29, verse 7, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Now there are times when the governments violate what the Word of God teaches, what do we do in a case like this? Well, Peter's an expert on this. Um, as you remember, Peter was pretty weak um, before Yeshua was resurrected from the dead. In fact, uh, when Jesus was arrested, 
Peter was so fearful that he even denied Jesus to a young handmaiden around a fire, if you remember that story. He was afraid of his own shadow. But after the resurrection and after the Holy Spirit came upon him at Pentecost, he was a changed man. He went from being timid to being a man with great authority and great courage. We read this in Acts chapter 4, verse 8 and following. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua, the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter had a lot to say about the cornerstone, not just in his letter, but here in his sermon before the leaders of the land. Now, verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then later we read that these religious leaders met together as a council, and they decided to command Peter and John not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Yeshua. And then here is Peter and John's response to that decree that goes against Yeshua's decree, his great commission to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Verse 19, it says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they further, had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. So there are limitations to governments with a government or other, another authoritarian institution, even established by God, will rule against what God has ruled, then we, like Peter and John, have to keep on doing what God tells us to do, even if that means we end up in prison or persecuted as a result. So we're still talking about being aligned to God's design. I've looked at being aligned to Yeshua, our cornerstone. I've talked about being aligned to God's ordained human authorities. And then in the same category of human authorities, Peter addresses the matter of how we align ourselves to those we work for. So from our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 and following, we read, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. It is if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, the majority of people in Peter's day in this Roman society were not employees, as we think of employees today, but were actually slaves or servants. It's hard to imagine this, but these servants included professionals, whether they be managers of great estates, teachers, tutors, even doctors. It's interesting to look at this coming week's Torah portion, where there's included a large section on how slaves should be treated. 
Now, the children of Israel knew more about slavery than anybody else. And so when it came to how to deal with servants or slaves in their society, they were very sensitive to these things. And rules were established in order not to abuse such people. Now, there are other places in the Bible that talk about how masters should treat their servants. But here, Peter's focus is on how servants should behave and what their attitude should be toward their masters or their employers. The bottom line is this. We are all servants of God. And when we are working for our bosses, we are not really working for them. We are working for the master above them, the master of the universe, God himself. Peter says in verse 20, of chapter 2. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Our real boss, then, is not our earthly boss, it's our heavenly boss. Paul puts it this way concerning servants and their masters in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters as to the Messiah, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as bond servants of the Messiah doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Have you ever thought of your boss as not really your boss, but God is your boss? When you think only that man or that woman is your boss in the office, you might at times get lax, maybe not do your job or waste a lot of time on your computer, browsing around that has nothing to do with your work. But if you understand that your real boss is the Lord, you're going to behave very differently. And that is commendable to God, and it will be commendable to your earthly bosses as well. Now we come to maybe the most controversial part of the passage, and I'm going to deal with it. And that is how we should be aligned to our marriage partner. First, we're to be aligned to our cornerstone. Then we're to be aligned to the governing authorities that God puts in place, aligned to our employers, our bosses, knowing that he's ultimately our boss. And now we come to this final dimension of alignment, and that is aligning with our marriage partner. This is what Peter says, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3 now of First Peter. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, Peter is speaking in the midst of a society that did not treat women typically very well. And there were many abusive husbands in those days. Now, it's surprising to me, but I was reading an article yesterday that said that in Switzerland, a very progressive country, it was only 70, uh, 50 years ago, 1971, that women were given the right to vote. It's surprising that this kind of inequality and 
ill treatment of women can even happen in modern cultures. Now, in so many ways, we should be grateful for those who have raised their voices loud and called for more equitable treatment of women. On the other hand, it is possible to swing the pendulum to the other extreme. And in fact, if you watch TV programs these days, men are typically the ones who are portrayed as lazy bums, stupid, irresponsible, unfaithful, and on and on. And that's painting with a very broad brush. But I have to say that possibly the biggest problem today related to gender is not the problem of strong women, but rather weak men. In God's order of relations to the family, men are to provide leaders, the primary leadership. But if a man refuses to lead and is unable to be an example of how to live as a family, then you have a vacuum. And when there's a vacuum, someone will fill that vacuum. And until there's a change in that improper structure, it may be better that a woman fill the vacuum than a man who's out of alignment with God's purpose for his life in relation to his wife and children. But that's not God's ideal. I want to make one thing crystal clear. There are only two dimensions in God's kingdom in which men ideally are to have the primary leadership. And that's in the kehilah, in the congregation, the church, and secondly, in the home. We should never twist the scriptures to say that women cannot be presidents or prime ministers or that they are forbidden to be CEOs of corporations. The fact is there are outstanding women in society today who are worthy of those very significant positions of authority. If you don't think women can make great leaders, check out Deborah the judge in the Old Testament. Check out the fact that in a traditionally patriarchal society in Israel, you have a prime minister called Golda Meir. And she was a great leader in this nation. And she was no wall, wallflower, that's for sure. And in Proverbs 31, Solomon talks about what's known as the woman of valor. Uh, the word in Hebrew, uh, the phrase in Hebrew is eshet chayal. And chayal, or chayal, is the word for soldier in modern Hebrew. And certainly that woman that Solomon praised was a strong woman. We read in chapter 31, I'll read just a few verses. She opens her mouth and with, wis with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household she does, and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. And we read in other parts of that same chapter that this woman that is praised is one who's a real estate investor. She's one who makes a profit. She works hard and she's smart. In God's wisdom, when it comes to the nuclear family, even an eshet chayil, is to let her husband take the primary lead. There cannot be two captains of a ship, and anything with two heads is a monster. So God has conceived the way, ideally, a structure of the foundation of the family has two choices to make. God either will choose that a woman or a man would be the primary leaders in the home. Well, God chose men to have that role. Why? Well, maybe the easiest answer is just because. I know that's an answer I gave my kids many times when they were younger, when they wanted to go out at night, uh, and I would say no, and sometimes I would just simply say, just because. But let me suggest maybe a few other ideas apart from just God's sovereign choosing, 
And that is that a woman is the one who bears children. And especially for women who bear many children, there are times when they have to focus on one child at a time, sometimes causing other children to be jealous and want her attention but can't have it. The man, on the other hand, doesn't have the need to focus on one child but can help nurture and direct all of the children, especially during those times when the new mother is not able to pay attention to all the children. And let me add that I believe being a wife and mother is the most difficult, potentially the most stressful job on the planet. It's a full-time job, and it's not a nine-to-five job. A mother is on call 24 hours a day. I wonder if God maybe thought men have it too easy, and thus they should take on another very challenging task, the responsibility of leadership and the accountability that goes with it before God. Let me suggest another reason. God is father. He's not our mother. Now, God has a side of him which has feminine characteristics. It says in Isaiah chapter 16, verse 13, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. But one cannot ignore that God is our heavenly father. And so the husband is to reflect father, the fatherhood of God, the ideal father should be like our Father in heaven. One cannot ignore that God already said back in Genesis to uh, the first wife and mother that your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Again, we might want to say he chose that just because or maybe some other reasons as well. So I speak, I'm speaking a few more minutes about husbands and wives. I think it's important here. And I hope that nobody gets offended, but I will try to be biblical. And thus, if you have an issue with the Bible, then you have an issue with God, not so much with me. The reality is, under the New Covenant, there is far greater focus on the value and contribution of women in society, and in families in particular. Sadly, much of ancient society, before Yeshua came, women were generally viewed as the inferior sex. The Jewish historian Josephus viewed women as in the inferior gender, even when it comes to morality. Now let me remind you of what Peter says, the way that a wife should be aligned to her husband. It's important to note that Peter's focus seems to be on a husband who is not a follower of Yeshua, and yet the wife needs to be aligned in some way to that husband. Peter's focus is not about how the wife should be a doormat and let a husband run roughshod over her, but Peter elevates the wife to having the role of an evangelist in that marriage. She has the elevated role of being a representative of God most high in relation to her unbelieving husband. Her submission and obedience is primarily a means by which she will bring her husband to the Lord. She will not influence her husband to come to the Lord by her outward beauty and the accessories she wears. Rather, it's the inner beauty of God's presence in her life that will attract her husband to the Lord. Peter says it this way, the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So any woman listening to my message tonight, and you're married to an unbeliever, or maybe to a believer who doesn't act like a believer, don't spend too much time lecturing your husband and trying to change him. Don't threaten him if he doesn't get his act together, nor should you hold back your affection from him, but rather get as close as you can to the cornerstone, Yeshua. Be closely aligned with him. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you more of the fruit of the Spirit so that the fruit that grows in your life will cause the husband to say, I want to taste and see, and they will know that the Lord is good as you've 
borne that fruit. Now, I don't want to leave this matter of how wives should be aligned with their husbands without also saying there are times when a husband is so far from God and rebellion against him that he becomes an abuser and a danger to your very existence. Earlier, I spoke about the need to align with God's ordained human institutions of government. And one of the things that Peter says in our text in chapter 2, verse 14, is that the governing rulers are sent by God for punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So there are times when the abuse is at a level and a type that you must go to God's ordained governmental authorities, to the legal part of society, to the police force, the courts, to stop that abuse. Now, I know it's a fine line to know when that abuse reaches that stage. I would suggest that you not try to make that decision alone. Go to your pastors and leaders, your elders in a congregation, and pray with them and get the mind of the Lord on whether to go to the authorities or not. I believe God would direct us. Now, if it's a believing husband who's abusive, and hopefully that abusive husband would go with you to the pastors and leaders and listen to their counsel. You know, Matthew chapter 8, 18 gives us a very clear picture about when you are sinned against the stage you go to before you go to the legal authorities. You first go to the elders, and then there's witnesses, and then if they, the man doesn't change, then... You take it to the whole congregation, and then ultimately you have to go beyond that if there's no repentance. Now I come to Peter's instructions for husbands. Reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. First thing I want to point out, he says, that you are heirs together. The implication is that both husband and wife are joint heirs to whatever God has for them. There is an equality in privilege. And within that one verse, there are a number of ways in which a godly husband should be aligned to his wife. Number one, Peter says that husbands should dwell with them. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, maybe not. I know couples who may live in the same apartment but are far apart. They may be together at meals, but the rest of the time they're in different rooms. Or if they're in the same room, they're not really present with each other, if you know what I mean. Secondly, Peter says to the husband, dwell with them with understanding. Now, some scholars say that this word understanding in its context means to consider the wife's insight and knowledge of a matter. A godly husband is not a know-it-all. He should humbly acknowledge that his wife might know something he doesn't know. And in fact, my observation has been that many times women have far more discernment about things than men. And you know, there are prophets in the Old Testament and New Testament that are women. And prophets are insightful people. They can see things the average person can't see. And so our wives can really help us in this matter. But we must be considerate to listen to their perspective. Number three, a husband should dwell with their wives not only uh, with understanding, but also give honor to the wife. I'm going to give honor to my wife this evening. She's in this room. I'm thrilled with the fact that Pastor Chad and the executive team have uh, delegated and the leadership of what we now call the summit. It's on the 17th story of the same building where I'm standing right now, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. We once called it the prayer tower. Now it's the summit. And she's doing it right. She's been gathering key leaders in worship and intercession and getting their input before she tar- starts to organize the tower. And uh, as you know, we can only gather up to 10 people now, and so it's been a challenge to relaunch, but we're doing it. 
You know, I'm proud of my wife, the work she's been doing over these past 37 years while we've been in Israel, helping the local body uh, create a hymnology for the messianic body in this land, helping composers write and arranging music, recording them, doing live concerts with singers and musicians from all over Israel in this place, and she's made a great impact. Perhaps I'm most proud about how passionate she is for the Lord and for prayer and what she's doing right now in launching the summit. So husbands, we need to dwell with our wives with understanding, tapping into their insights, and we should give honor to our wives, and the husbands should be a shield to their wife. That is the title of our series, Life Behind the Shield. It can be very offensive to many women, but it says in our text that the woman is the weaker vessel. Many Greek scholars here think that this means physical weakness, and it's true that men, generally speaking, are stronger physically. I just read an article about an Olympic athlete who's very upset about transgenders who have become women and are now competing with women in various sports. And that's unfair. As a man is born a man, is generally much stronger. So husbands... We need to make sure that we understand that we're stronger, generally speaking, than women physically. And we ought to shield them. We ought to protect them and keep them. It could also mean that they're more sensitive, more vulnerable to wounding because of their sensitivity. And we ought to protect their emotions as well. David was a sensitive shepherd. He was so sensitive to God's voice that he was an artist. And aren't you thankful for his psalms? Well, David also wrote in Psalm 144, verse 1, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. So those same hands and fingers that plucked the strings of his, of his harp were also the hands and fingers that hurled five smooth stones and, and took a, a, a spear to ultimately kill Goliath. And it's interesting that we say today, Magen David, Shield of David, he also bore a shield. And you and I as husbands need to be a shield to our wives. Now some of you listening to me this evening have not come to know Yeshua personally yet as your Lord and Savior. There's only way to come to God and it's by way of Yeshua. He says, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 6 that God has placed in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And God already knew that his son Yeshua would be rejected by many. It says in verse 4 that God's cornerstone is rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He writes in the next verse that Yeshua is the stone which the builders rejected. And then in the next verse he says that this cornerstone is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now that's the way many people see Yeshua. Maybe that's the way you've seen Yeshua. But I'm now introducing you to a new Yeshua you may have seen his distorted face, but his real face is the face of one who loves you so much so that he died for you, that you wouldn't have to pay for your sins. He took your sins upon himself on the cross. And Peter says in verse 6 that the one who believes on him will find him precious, the precious cornerstone. He is the most valuable person in the world, and he is worthy of dying for. If you have not yet entrusted your life to your Savior, this is the time to do it. The stone that the builders rejected is God's precious cornerstone, and you need to be aligned to His stone to be pleasing to the Father. 
and to know God personally. And finally, to believers who are listening to my voice this evening. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 25, saying that we are like sheep going astray. That's our sinful nature to do that. Well, let me say this, that if you've wandered far from your shepherd, now is the time to return. This is the time to repent, to change your mind, go in the direction of him again. It's time to go back to the lover of our souls. He's waiting for you with arms wide open, and he especially loves to welcome back prodigals. He wants to embrace you and realign you with himself. The answer is to be with Yeshua. Once you're aligned with him, once you're close to him, then you're going to be a brand new person. Being with Yeshua was what made Peter the great apostle he became. Earlier, we looked at Peter's response to those religious authorities in Jerusalem after he had helped heal that lame man. And the authorities were all upset. But I didn't read these verses in his in that passage, verses 13 and 14 of Acts chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Yeshua. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. What was the key to Peter's boldness? He had been with Yeshua. If you will align yourself with Yeshua... Draw close to the cornerstone. Get in, his, in the position in the building that God has ordained. And God will bless you. God will use you in powerful ways just as he used Peter the apostle. Let's be with Yeshua every day. Let's draw close to him. Hallelujah. We are entering possibly the greatest spiritual battle prior to the return of the Lord. We need to be realigned with God's design. And only in this way. Will we be aligned with his design and we will be under or behind his shield of protection? Lord, we ask you now to let these words pierce our soul, to change the way we look at the world, to make us more in line with your perfect will, that we ultimately might be living stones that give you praise in Yeshua's name. Amen.